Today we're going to be in First uh, Samuel 18. This week for my expository preaching class, I had to uh, preach to a bunch of pastors, which was nerve-wracking in and amongst itself. But the expositional preacher, uh, teacher, said, you can preach however you want in your own church, but in this class you get the Bible and a sheet of paper. That's it. And so that was a little nerve-wracking and made me appreciate the fact that I have this handy-dandy computer that when it cooperates is very, uh, very good. <laughs> All right. First uh, Samuel 18, in our passage last week, we were able to see the fierce danger that all who mocked God are in. It was quick and brutal. And we saw that our battles in this world are not our own. For the battle is the Lord's. David and Goliath provided a perfect view of how God can and will, will deal with his enemies in a very public way. It was a very public battle for all to see. But what happens when the battle is private or unseen? Sure, God protected David in the arena that was that battlefield. But what about enemies that don't roar and wear bright, shiny armor and throw threats or curses at your God? What if instead they scheme and plot against you and seek your spiritual demise all while smiling sweetly in your face? Where is God then? Let's let the text answer that question. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 18. We're going to start in verse 1 there, and I'll read that to you. 1 Samuel 18, starting in verse 1. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul. Remember, David, uh, as we ended the last chapter, still had the head of Goliath in his hand. And Saul said, who's your father? Who's your daddy? Right? And uh, David was answering him. And once they finished that, it came about uh, when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not... Let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul sent him over the men of war. And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. It happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, with musical instruments. But the women sang as they played, and they said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of the house, while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual, and the spear was in Saul's hand. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. Therefore, Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as his commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. When Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. 
But all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Mary. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be a valiant man for me, and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, My hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. But David said to Saul, Who am I, and what is my life, or my father's family in Israel, that I should be the king's son-in-law? So it came about at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should be uh, given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the my Bible splits this word in half, which makes it really hard to say, but Melahath, Maholathite, there we go, Maholathite for a wife. Now, Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. When they told Saul the thing was agreeable to him, Saul thought, I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David, For a second time you may be my son-in-law today. Then Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David secretly, saying, Behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words to David. But David said, Is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and lightly esteemed? The servants of Saul reported to him according to these words which David spoke. Saul then said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. When his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Before the days had expired, David rose up and he went with he and his men and struck down 200 men among the Philistines. Then David brought their foreskins and gave them in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave him Michal, his, his daughter, for a wife. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle. And it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul. So his name was highly esteemed. May God add the blessing of his understanding to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord, our prayer is simple today. What we have not, give us, Lord. What we know not, teach us, Lord. Make your words my words. Lord, and we will give you all the glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we dig into this passage, I want to, to point out just a few markers for you. I want you to just keep an eye on them as we move through, right? And, and those markers are the relationships that God puts into David's life. Whether it's his relationship with Jonathan or Michael. Now, some of you are saying, wait, that looks like Michael. In English, it's Michael. In Hebrew, it's Michael. Michael or Michal, right? Uh, if I screw up and say Mikhail, McCall, Michael, you know who I'm talking about, right? Saul, uh, the relationship with the people, and of course, the Lord himself. Now we'll touch more on this as we get into the application of this study today. But I just want you to keep your eyes peeled for that, right? And speaking of relationships, we get into verse 1 there. Now it came about, he finishes having his conversation with Saul, and we bump into Jonathan again. We remember Jonathan from previous battles. He was the one that said, is the Lord constrained to save by many or by few? Who knows? Maybe the Lord will help us today. And so the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. We saw this before in Genesis 44.30 uh, when uh, uh, David, excuse me, Joseph was in Egypt 
brothers came to him for grain, and they didn't realize it was Joseph. Right? They sold him off into slavery. They thought he was dead. He became second in command in Egypt. And they show up in front of him, and to test them, he says, leave your youngest son, Benjamin, with me. And go back to your father, and then I, I'll know that, that I can trust you. And they said, no, 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 we can't do that. We can't do that because our father, his soul is knit to his son. It would break him. It would kill him. Right? This knitting of the soul implies a very deep relationship, a deep, deep friendship. And, and so then in verse 2, we move on, and we see Saul took him that day. If we remember back to uh, Samuel's warning, remember when the people said, we want a king? He said, you can have a king, but he's going to be a taker. He's going to take your daughter. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your camels. He's going to take your donkeys. He's going to take your land. Well, that's what Saul was doing here. And we read earlier that whenever Saul encountered a mighty man, he would take him, and he would put him in his court. And so he would build his court full of mighty men. And that's what he does to David here. Then verse 3, we see that Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. So we think of a covenant, like, what, is it, what does that look like, right? Like, blood brothers, like, you prick your thumb and I'll prick my thumb and stick them together and blood brothers. It's not a covenant like that, right? A covenant was more like what we remember with Abraham, when Abraham made the covenant with God, and they sliced animals in half, and they put them on either side of the path, and then God put Abraham to sleep because there's no possible way Abraham could ever keep his side of the bargain, and God walked through the pieces of the animal himself, saying he would both uphold both sides of the argument. But the whole meaning of that is having the animals sliced in half and then walking in between them is, if we go through this together, if we make this covenant, and one of us reneges, one of us says, uh, no, I, I, never mind, I don't want to do that anymore, may he be like these animals that are chopped in half. Right? It's a, it a serious deal. And so he makes this covenant, and we see in this covenant, we see that, that Jonathan is realizing something that his father never really realized in a good way. That David was the king, was God's anointed. David was to be the next king. And Jonathan was, was making a covenant with him and saying, I agree, you will be the next king of Israel. And I can say that because we look in verse 4 and we see that Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, his princely robe, and gave that to David. And he, he gave him his armor and his sword and his bow and his belt. And this is important because. Remember, back in, not the last battle of David and Goliath, but the battle before that, when all the Philistines were lined up like the sand on the seashore, and we realized there were only two swords in the entire nation of Israel. And who had them? Saul and Jonathan. That sword, Jonathan takes and he gives to David. He's acknowledging that David will be the next king. And in that, he's acknowledging that God is in charge, not Jonathan. He's acknowledging that God has done this. And I will do what God said. So David goes out wherever Saul sends him, and he prospers. And Saul sent him over the men of war. He made him sort of a general, if you will. And it was pleasing in all the sight of the people. And Saul's servants appreciated it. They, they loved David. He was doing well. And it happened that they, they killed the, the, the Philistines. David had killed Goliath, and they routed the Philistines, and they're coming back. And think of the old World War II uh, videos you may have seen or pictures from World War I when the war was over and the troops were coming back and they had those big ticker tape parades and everybody was lined up on the road and the troops walked in amongst them and they said, yay, the war is over. This is what's going on here, right? The, the women of Israel are coming out. They're singing. They're playing uh, tambourines and musical instruments. 
And they sing this little song. They say, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, if we read this in just with our English connotations, we look at that and we say, well, I, I can kind of see how Saul would be ticked off about that. I mean, they're saying David's so much better than he is. But we, remember, when we read this, we have to remember the context and the language it was written in. It was written in Hebrew, right? And this is a little chunk of poetry hidden in this narrative here. And to understand Hebrew poetry, we need to understand a few things. One, whoever you named first was the most important. And then everybody else came after that. right? So Saul has slain his thousands. Really was saying Saul was the most important person. Also in Hebrew poetry, it was traditional to bump the numbers up as you went. right? Saul has slain his thousands. They were going to say, and David slew one. Right? That would, the poetry wouldn't be good there. They wanted to, this was inspiring. And David has slain his ten of thousands, right? So according to Hebrew poetry, this wouldn't really be that offensive unless you are super paranoid, right? And Saul was super paranoid. Saul was super paranoid because, remember when Samuel was there and, and Samuel went to leave and Saul reached out and grabbed his cloak and ripped a chunk of it off. Samuel said to him, just as you ripped that chunk off my robe, God has ripped this kingdom from you. He's ripped it from you, and he's given it to someone better, your neighbor. And from that day on, everywhere that Saul went, Saul was watching. Who's, who's avenging me? Who's better than me? Who's avenging me? And so he hears this song, and all of a sudden, it clicks in his head. And Saul become very, became very angry. For the saying displeased him, he said, they've ascribed David to David ten thousands, but to me they've ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul was wrapped with fear. He hears this song, he's paranoid, and it makes <coughs> verse 9 happen. Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Intense jealousy. Flames the fire of spiritual oppression. We watch this king descend psychologically down this rabbit hole of guilt and shame and jealousy. And it shouldn't surprise us that the very next verse, verse 10, talks about the evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul. So he's raving, he's angry, he's throwing stuff, he's, he's probably cursing, right? And here comes David and he flips out the harp and Right? And that's supposed to calm Saul down. It wouldn't calm me down. I would probably be like, please take that stupid thing out of here. I don't want to hear the harp. But David knows this is what normally works, and he plays the little harp. And while David was playing the harp with his hand, as usual, a spear was in Saul's hand. Don't let that word picture pass you by there. David was playing for peace. Saul had a spear in his hand. He wasn't in war. He wasn't feeling threatened. He was in his house, but he carried around a spear. Not just one, but two, because we see that after he chucks this thing at David and misses, he, he does it again, right? David uh, escaped from his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. And he said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's a guy, he's got a spear, he's the king, he can tell people what to do. And there's another guy, he's got a harp, which is just annoying, but it's not really deadly. 
Why isn't David afraid of Saul? Why isn't Saul is afraid of David? For the Lord is with him, and he departed from Saul. We say, well, geez, David, this guy chucked the spear at you twice. Wouldn't you kind of want to, you know, keep your distance from him? And, and why didn't David know what was going on here? But you have to remember, this was a regular occurrence for Saul. He normally flew into these rages. That's the whole reason that David had been there in the first place, was to calm him down with the heart. Right? So he probably didn't understand what was going on, that Saul really did hate him and was scared of him. And therefore, Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as the commander of thousands, and he went out and came in before. He's kicked out of the palace. He's removed from Saul's sight. And we see this even today, right? When, when we see somebody that, that comes to church and all of a sudden they backslid, maybe they're, they're involved in a sin and, and they know it's wrong, but they keep doing it. They don't want to be anywhere near other Christians that may hold them accountable, that may remind them that God is displeased with their actions. They don't want to be anywhere near a church where they come in and they hear God's holy word say, what you're doing is wrong. So they push away. And they're not abandoning their friends or their, their church. They're abandoning God. And that's what Saul's doing here. He's, he's kicking this reminder that, that David has the Lord and he doesn't. Get, get him out of my sight. I don't, I don't even want to remember that. And David was prospering in all of his ways. For the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. Listen for Saul's thoughts on David throughout this entire passage. Remember, two chapters ago, when he first brought him into the court, what did Saul do? Saul loved him. And now in the space of two chapters, we've gone to Saul being jealous of him. Saul being suspicious of him. Suspicion turns to fear, and fear turns to dread. And dread will turn into plotting. And then will turn into very great fear. But, all Israel and Judah loved David. And he went out and came in before them, and they thought David was the bee's knees. Right? He couldn't do anything wrong. So Saul says, I gotta take care of this. I gotta figure this out. And he says, Ah, I got it. David, here's my oldest daughter, Mary. I will give her to you as a wife. Only this is what you have to do to give her. Be valiant and fight the Lord's battles. Now, question. Last week. We talked about Goliath. Right? Remember David walked up and he said, what will be done for the guy that killed Goliath? And everyone's like, oh, you're going to be rich? You're going to get to marry the king's daughter? So why is Merib not just given to David? Because he killed Goliath. That should have been what it was. But Saul reneges on that and says, no, no, no. You have to be valiant for me. Go fight the Lord's battles. He's very sanctimonious. Go fight the Lord's battles. So Saul thought, my hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistine be against him. You see his sin running his course. We see that with David, with Bathsheba, when, when he uh, has a, a, an adulterous affair with, with Bathsheba. David resorts to this too, right? His sin blinds him, and then he says, uh, I'll, I'll send him out to battle and let him, let him die off. Then it won't be my fault. But David says to Saul, who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel? 
I should be the king's son-in-law. Who am I? I'm not rich. What is my life or my father's family? If you remember, David wasn't a full Israelite. His great-great-great-grandmother had been a Moabite. So he had Moabite blood in him. Uh, if you want to research that, go back to Ruth. The very last chapter, or verses of, of Ruth there. Um, we understand that Ruth married Boaz. Boaz had Obed. Obed had Jesse. Jesse had David. So he's saying, I, I don't even have pure Israelite blood. Why would I be the king? Or the king's son-in-law. So it came about uh, when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David. She was given to Adriel the Mahalathite. It's easier to read when it's all in word. There's a, there's a sad story that's attached to that. Even when we make it to 2 Samuel, we'll see what happens with Adriel and the Mahalathite. And then his sons, they actually end up uh, being killed. So it's a sad thing. But David doesn't see it as a sad thing. And neither does Mikhail. Mikhail is, is Saul's daughter, and she loves David. Right? How could you not love this guy? Saul's I don't know how tall he was, but he was handsome. right? He was bold, and she fell in love with him. And, and when Saul finds out, he says, Aha, this is it. He thinks in verse 21, I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him. Great guy, by the way. Wow, what a father. I'm use my daughter to snare my enemy. I will give her to, become, to him that she may become a snare to him, that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So he knows the first time he did it, he kind of messed up. He didn't really uh, go about it. He, he thought David would just accept the marriage. So this time he, off, he offers up a little subterfuge, right? And he says, I'm going to give Mikhail to him, but I want to um, set this up with my servants first. So he says to his servants, speak to David secretly, saying, behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Right? Let's appeal to his pride a little bit there. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. He was attempting to deceive David into thinking he really liked David. And later on, we'll see something about this that, that is a little troubling, but for now, just consider the deception troubling enough. So Saul's servants uh, speak it to David, and David says, is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law? Since I am a poor man. Now, a poor man means I don't have money for a dowry. When you got married back then, you had to provide a dowry for the woman that you were marrying, and if you were marrying a king's daughter, it had to be a pretty significant chunk of check, right? This wasn't pocket change. He needed a pretty significant dowry. And he mentions again his, his uh, family line. And poor man, lightly esteemed. So the servants run back to Saul and tell him that, and Saul's like, no, 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 tell him this, tell him this. The king doesn't want any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Right. Ooh. Right? I think we can all agree on that. Ooh. But again, remember, this is not 21st century, right? This is like eight, nine hundred before B, before Christ. So back then, this was pretty normal, right? Back then, you give me a hundred foreskins, and uh, we'll count that. And uh, it would have been um, something that David probably would have understood. I mean, if you remember Jacob, when Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, he wasn't a rich man. So what did he do for Rachel? He worked for seven years. 
father pulled a little switcheroo. He got Leah, so he had to work another seven years to get Rachel. But he worked for his dowry, and that's what's going on here. He says, give me a hundred foreskins, and you can have it. That will be your dowry. David was pleased to do that. I mean, this guy's been out watering Philistines for the last couple of years. He's like, sure, what's a hundred? Okay. And he goes out and he kills two hundred. And this is what I was talking about right here. Maybe David went out and slew the 200 because he said, well, you said 100, I'm going to do 200. <laughs> but it seems to me like David was just trying to please his father-in-law. And we see that as, as Saul pursues David over the next several chapters. David says, why are you attacking me? You're my king. Why are you doing this? So David goes out and gets 200 foreskins and delivers them to Saul. I don't really want to think about that part too much. They didn't have Ziploc bags back then. So I don't even want to know how that went down. Thankfully, the Bible doesn't tell us. I don't have to talk about it too much more. So when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and the call Saul's daughter loved him, and Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. Put yourself in Saul's shoes. He hates David. He knows that David is the one that's going to steal his throne. But everybody else around him, he's walking down the path. Oh, did you hear what David did last week? Oh, David did this. Oh, I love David. That's all he's hearing. Saul was terrified of him, but everybody loved David. He was a jealous and insecure man, trapped in his hatred. Then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle, and it happened as often as they went out. David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul. You remember Saul's military clubs, right? They, they were going to go out and, and attack, and he said, nobody can eat all day long. We're going to go run a marathon with swords, but nobody can eat. We, we know that he could have done so much more against the Philistines had he not made this idiotic order, this foolish order. David didn't do that. Everywhere David went, he won. He was a genius. He was a tactician. And most importantly, the Lord was with him. And he fought and he won, but his name was highly pleased. How quickly things have gone from victory to distrust. Last chapter, we saw David walking around with the head of the Philistine. There was victory. People were happy. We left it on a, a testosterone-fueled high with David marching around carrying the giant's head. He really wanted to get ahead in life. Oh. <laughs> I did it. Not proud, but I did it. And at the crack of this passage, David became, became fast friends with Jonathan. Right, and how could he not? You remember the, the, the battle with Jonathan where he shows himself to the Philistines and he says, if they call us up there, if we have to climb up that slippery, sharp, nasty cliff to get to them, then we'll know that God is with us. For God, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or few. And then you remember David saying, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? He's just a beast in the field. I'll take him down like I took down the lion and the bear. Right? Put these two guys in a room and they are going to be friends. But so quickly, Saul's love for David mentioned two chapters ago just melts into distrust and jealousy. 
And Saul tries to outright kill David. Then through deception tries to have him killed. And we end this passage on a note of fear from Saul. On the face of it, it's an intriguing story. Right? We're seeing the new king on the rise, and God was with him. He's winning all his battles. And the old king declining into a murderous insanity. But just like we did with David and Goliath, we need to look back into the inner workings of what was going on. Back into the heart of this passage. Not proud of it, but I was involved in theater for a while. And I can tell you that what the audience sees is so much different than what was going on backstage. Right? On stage there's laughter and singing and uh, drama. But backstage, that's where the things were happening. The music was pumped in from backstage. The costumes were switched out. The set itself was designed and moved. And the backstage crew also cleared the stage in between scenes, right? The lights would go out, they clear everything off, set up the new one. And backstage could make or break a production. I was in one play, and the previous scene, before the scene that I was in, there was a a lady chopping wood, and it was supposed to be simulated, and she chopped, and a chunk of wood came off about this big. It fell onto the stage. The scene was over, the lights went down, they changed everything out, they took everything off. And, and my scene came on, and I was supposed to come out, and a guy was supposed to come running across the stage, and he was excited, and he was going to tell me what was going on. And this guy comes barreling out from the side there, and he runs over, and he steps right on that sliver of wood, and goes, whoop, just like that. And forgive me. That's how my brain works, right? He was dressed like a cowboy, and as he goes like ragdoll limp, flying through the air, and I thought, he looks like 80s in Toy Story. <laughs> you know when all the, the toys, the humans would come in and they, yeah. you know, they do that? <laughs> Poor guy. He was so embarrassed. He was okay, but he was embarrassed. We played it off, and the show went on, but the backstage crew can make or break a performance with just one little oversight. In the stage of life, we have a background crew as well. And he doesn't mess up the timing. And he doesn't miss a thing. His timing is perfect and he knows all things. So as we look at the relationships and the events in this story, we should absolutely see their effect on this passage. But to fully understand this passage, we need to understand that every it just so happened or David grew in favor with the people was in small part due to the individual's actions, but in a very large and very real part due to the background events that God controlled. We need to realize that, that the people were placed in David's path that pushed him where God wanted him to be. Whether it was the deep friendship with Jonathan, who would later save David from Saul's anger, or McCall, who would, would thwart Saul's assassination plot with a dummy in a story. We'll see that one, too. God was engineering each encounter to grow and to protect David as he continued in his journey to the role of king. And you say, well, gee, Lance, that's great. But what's the big deal? Well, the point is this. The same God that watched over David and guided his interactions and protected him when he was under attack is the God that watches over you and me. 
Turn with me to go to John 17. John 17. We're going to be looking at, this is Jesus' uh, high priestly prayer. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows that his time has come, that they will betray him. He's going to the cross, and he stops and he prays. And we're going to jump in about halfway through that prayer there uh, in verse 13. But he's praying to the Father. So just know that. This is Jesus praying to the Father. Verse 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. These alone are the apostles. He's about to say who? All of that stuff that he just said, keep them from the evil one. For they're not of the world. Help them to be sanctified. All of that, he's going to say right here in verse 20. I do not ask that on behalf of these alone, the disciples, but for those who believe in me through their word. Every Christian that came after the disciples, you, me, this is Jesus' prayer. He prayed for you the night he was betrayed. Hours before he would hang on a cross, he was praying for you and for me. I do not ask this on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. You see, God watches over the affairs of a believer the same way he watched over the affairs of David. And I know you might be saying to yourself, well, Lance, I don't see a kingdom in my future. I'm not set up to be a king. Some days, maybe even most days, it doesn't seem like God is even paying attention to me. I struggle to pay my bills. Relationships in my life have crumbled. My health isn't good. I don't like my job. God isn't watching out for me like he did David. I don't prosper in anything I do. Go back to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. We're going to go to chapter 19. We're just going to read a half of a verse. That very first verse, half of the verse. Now Saul told Jonathan, his son, and all his servants to put David to death. Anybody still want God to watch out for you like he did David? Or how about the first half of verse 11 in that chapter, chapter 19? Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. Not sounding like such a great king anymore, is it? The reality is, when Jesus was praying for us in that high priestly prayer, he wasn't praying for us to have McMansions and Ferraris and Armani suits. He was praying for protection for us while we were sanctified. Protection of our eternal souls as we wearily travel this battlefield. He was praying for endurance while we face trials and tribulations. Some of us have been through or are going through terrible things. Families have been destroyed by divorce or death or drugs or unfaithfulness. 
livelihoods have been ruined, jobs lost, and family members have drifted from God. And while Jesus wasn't praying to take us out of the world, he was praying that when we faced those things, God the Father would use them to strengthen our faith, to mold our beliefs, to sanctify us. Listen to Peter as he says in 1 Peter 4, 12-13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Fiery ordeal, does that sound fun? Fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. Testing. There's two words in Greek for testing. The first one is like, hey, do you know math? Let's give you a math test, right? The second word, testing, the word used here, is testing to say, is this really gold? Is this really silver? I'm going to test it. I'm going to heat it up to the temperature that I know that silver will melt at. And if it melts at that temperature, I know it's silver. That's what this testing is. There's going to be fiery ordeals which come upon you for your testing to prove your faith. Why are you surprised as though some strange thing were happening to you? But to the degree that you are shared, that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. We, and I'm including myself in this, we are finite creatures with eternal souls. But as that finite creature, we struggle so hard with thinking eternally. Right? We're so focused on what's going on in our world. Is our economy going to collapse? Our, our, is our country going to collapse? Who's getting elected? Who's not getting elected? What, what is this legislation coming? Are, are, are we going to do this? What about this? What about this? What about this? That's such a finite part of infinity. It's less than a half of a blink compared to eternity. Christ focuses on eternity. We struggle when we focus on now. Next week, tomorrow, this afternoon, when the sermon ends. Christ focuses on focuses us on eternity. Yes. You are going through trouble in this little insignificant blink of life. But eternity will be magnificent. Amen. There will be no pain. There will be no crying. You will, with, you will be with God always. For eternity. Not this. Brothers and sisters, our blessings and our sufferings are from the Lord to test us, to strengthen us, to prove our faith. Backstage hasn't forgotten to sweep up and caused you to fall for no reason. Our trials and tribulations have a purpose. And although you may be going through something so terrible, so awful, so overwhelming that you feel like you're going to be crushed, know that God is Still there with you, watching over you, praying for you, loving you. I think when we get to heaven, I know that, that our, our life will be reviewed by God. And, and all those times where we're like, man, I, was, I felt so alone. 
or, or this happened and I didn't want it. I got this job, but I wanted this job, or I got this girl and I wanted this girl. And, and we'll look at our lives and we'll look at what could have been. We'll say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. You were watching out for me. You were protecting me. The Lord was with me. God is calling us to stand firm in your faith no matter what we do. For the battle is the Lord's. And our God does not make mistakes. We're going to pray now. But afterwards, we'll sing one last song. If you have never met this God that does not make mistakes, this God that watches over the comings and the goings of everything in your life, and you want to meet him, and you want to know him, and you want to walk in his ways, come down and talk to him. I'd love to share Jesus with you. If you want to come down and just pray, as we sing this last song, come on down. If you want me to pray with you, I'll pray with you. Brothers and sisters, as we go through life, as we struggle in this insignificant little blip, turn your eyes upon Jesus. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these passages that, on the face of it, are, are interesting stories or, or cool drama and hold our attention that way, but Lord, as we dig down into these passages, we see truths revealed about an all-powerful God, an all-loving God that, that watches over everything a believer does. Every interaction we have, we know that you are there, praying for us, loving us, strengthening us, so that we may exalt in the day of the Lord so exciting to think about, Lord. We can't wait. Lord, please watch over us as we go our separate ways. Keep us close to you, Lord. Sanctify us so that we, we may be holy like you are holy. And we will give you all the glory and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 about that day when we will all bow before him. There will be a day when death will be no more.